If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. As we continue in the book of Genesis this morning, we'll be in, in Genesis 15. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess it. He said, O Lord God, How may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down... A deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed four hundred years. But I will judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about, when the sun had set, that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Now, this chapter begins with the Lord appearing to Abram and reassuring him after he had come back from pursuing Kedorlamer and the kings of the Mesopotamian coalition that we had considered last week in chapter 14. The word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision here, and he says, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. This chapter begins with the Lord speaking in that way, and then the chapter ends with the Lord making a covenant, which is, in this case, a solemn unilateral promise 
from God to Abram. And so this is a chapter in which the Lord makes promises to Abram and affirms his word. And this is also a chapter in which we find that Abram believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so as we consider this chapter, we'll do so this morning under two main points, which is first of all, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of God, and then secondly, justification by faith. The faithfulness of God and justification by faith. So first of all, the, the faithfulness of God. I think it is significant that in the aftermath of the events of chapter 14, that the word of the Lord comes to Abram saying what he says here in verse 1. Just think about what had happened. Abram had defeated this coalition of four kings. These four kings were some distance away from their home base when Abram had defeated them. And Abram may have been worried that there would be a reprisal on the on the part of the survivors, that maybe these survivors would go back to their respective kingdoms, get up an army, and come back and get Abram. Just like these coalition kings had come down in the first place and had defeated those five rebellious kings of the Dead Sea region that we saw in chapter 14. I think often we tend to read chapter 14, we see Abram defeating uh, Kedorlamer and his allies, and we think, okay, that chapter is closed, Let's, let's move on. Abram himself might have actually been wondering whether he would be in the sights of an upcoming raid from Mesopotamia. And that's the kind of thing that might keep a fellow awake at night. And the Lord comes to him and says, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. And so in the midst of some potentially very troubling circumstances, the Lord says to Abram, Do not fear. Now, as we all know, it's, it's one thing to tell someone not to, not to be afraid, and it is another thing to give them a sufficient reason as to why they ought not to be afraid. And as the, the Lord says here to Abram, do not fear, he also gives Abram a sufficient reason as to why he ought not to be afraid. He says, I am a shield to you. Now, shield is a protective, defensive piece of armor. The better the shield, the better the protection will be. When that shield is none other than the sovereign Lord of all, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the protection could not be any better at all. And no doubt this is very reassuring to Abram that the Lord is a shield to him. And not only had Abram just returned from the defeat of the kings, he had also just lately refused to take the spoils of war from the hands of the king of Sodom. He had refused, as you recall, to give the king of Sodom the opportunity to think that he had made Abram rich. He passed up on the opportunity of gaining some wealth. But we also find here that Abram would not be the loser on that account. The Lord says to him, your reward will be very great, or could also be translated simply as your very great reward. In either case, the Lord himself 
is the one who is the ultimate reward which Abram received. Certainly, uh, the Lord gave Abram physical and earthly possessions and physical descendants and so on, but all of the possessions and the other rewards would be for naught if the Lord himself were not the one who was Abram's reward. And so even here in just the, the opening verse of the chapter, we see that the Lord is looking out for Abram, is taking care of him under the circumstances in which he found himself. He promised to take care of Abram, promised to keep him safe as a shield, to provide for him this great reward, the great reward which is ultimately God himself. But, on the other hand, Abram is looking at his present circumstances. And he may have been thinking back to those previous promises which the Lord had already given to him, promises about being made into a great nation and about having descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. And therefore, he asks the Lord that question that we see there in verse 2. He says, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus since you have given No offspring to me, one who is born in my house, is my heir. So God gives some reassuring words to Abram, but Abram is kind of facing the situation as he sees it there on the ground. He had received these gracious promises and had even received one or two more of them just now, but he asks, how is this going to work out under the present circumstances? He'd been promised great things, but things didn't actually look very promising. And so under the circumstances, the Lord reassures him, verse 4, that Eliezer is not going to be his heir, that rather it's going to be his own physical, biological descendant who comes forth from his own body. He takes Abram outside and shows him the stars and promises him, so shall your descendants be, as numerous as the stars. And at the Lord's word, we see that Abram believed in the Lord. Now, we'll, we'll come back for our second point and consider verse 6 at length, because this is the gospel here, that Abram believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. But before we do that, let's, let's continue to trace out this theme of the Lord's faithfulness that we see here in, in, in the chapter. We continue to see the Lord's faithfulness in this covenant which he makes with Abram. And so... The Lord promises in verse 7 that Abram's going to possess the land. And verse 8, Abram desires to be reassured as to how this is going to be. And then the Lord says, okay, bring out, bring out these animals. A heifer, a female goat, and a ram, each three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And these animals then are, are killed, and the, uh, the larger animals at least are, are cut, in, cut in two, and the halves laid opposite of one another with a, a pathway in between. And this was the practice for making a covenant in the old days that the animals would be killed and that the parties involved in the covenant would walk between the pieces of those dead animals. And in doing so, they were saying, may I become like one of these dead animals if I do not uphold my end of the covenant, if I do not uphold my end of the promise. And... As it turns out, as we see clearly, that it was only the Lord who passed through the pieces in the covenant making. It was the Lord's presence signified by this smoking oven and flaming torch that you see there in verse 17. John Gill described the situation by saying, Only God 
passed between the pieces. Not Abram. This covenant being as others God makes with men. Only on one side. God, in covenanting with men, promises and gives something unto them. But men give nothing to him, but receive from him, as was the case between God and Abram. And then the official words of the covenant there are in, in verses 18 through, through 21, where the Lord promises, To you and your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. And so the Lord establishes this covenant with Abram on account of Abram's question. He wanted to know how he could know that he was going to possess the land. And the Lord makes this promise to Abram, and the Lord affirms the promise by passing between the pieces while Abram is in a deep sleep, as you see in verse 12. And so the Lord, in this manner, reaffirms his previous promises by this, this covenant ceremony. And in considering the, the faithfulness of God, we should not miss that prophetic word which comes to Abram there in verses 13 through 16, how the Israelites would be strangers and enslaved in a land which is not their own, that God would punish the nation that they served, would bring them out with many possessions, that they would come out in the fourth generation, that Abram himself would die in peace at a good old age. And this indeed is exactly what happened. The Israelites were in Egypt for four generations. Moses was the fourth generation down from Levi. Abram did die in peace at a good old age. And when the descendants of Abraham did come to the promised land, they did execute the Lord's judgment upon the wicked nations of Canaan. As you find Moses speaking to this in Deuteronomy 9.5, he said, It is not for your righteousness or for the uprightness of your heart that you are going to possess their land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God is driving them out before you in order to confirm the oath which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so do you not see here how time and again the trustworthiness of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord is brought before our eyes here? The Lord promises to keep Abram safe, to be his great reward. He makes this covenant with Abram that he will fulfill the promises that he's given to Abram's descendants in regard to the possession of the land. And the things which the Lord promised here are seen to be fulfilled in the, the course of Old Testament history. The significance of all of this is that the Lord is faithful. As we've already seen in the, the book of Genesis already, the Lord relates to his people on the basis of covenant. He makes promises, states the arrangements, the way that things are going to be, and that's the way they are. And through Though all of this chapter deals specifically with a promise and a covenant that is particular to Abram from the Lord, nevertheless, the truths which we learn here about the Lord are applicable to you and I, because the Lord is ever the same. He does not change like shifting shadows, as you find in James 1.17. The Lord is faithful in these covenant promises to Abram, and Christian friend, please know that the Lord will be faithful to his promises to you as well. Now certainly this doesn't mean 
a lot of things. Doesn't mean that you'll never get hurt. Doesn't mean that you won't die young. Doesn't mean that you'll never be poor. Doesn't mean that earthly situations and relationships will always be good and easy for you. Doesn't mean that you will never be scarred by your own sin or that you will never suffer the consequences of sins that have been committed against you. The Lord has promised us no such thing. But he has promised you his presence, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. He has promised you in the gospel of Jesus Christ the forgiveness of sins and eternal life through faith in Christ. He has promised you that no temptation has seized you except what is common to man and that with the temptation God will provide the way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He has promised that all things will work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Romans eight twenty eight. He has told us that Christ will return to judge the living and the dead and that our bodies will be raised incorruptible. He has promised us the new heavens and the new earth. He has promised that we have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and is reserved in heaven for us and that in the meantime we're protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. First Peter 1, 4 and 5. The Lord has promised us these things in Christ. And just as the Lord was faithful to Abram, so he is faithful to us as well. And though, as we've said, most of the things in this chapter have a specificity which is particular to Abram, nevertheless, the words of verse 1 can be applied to everyone who has received Christ and been adopted into the family of God. Was Abraham instructed not to fear? So too are we who are in Christ. Our Lord Jesus has said, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. So do not fear, for you are more valuable than many sparrows. Matthew 10, 29 to 31. Again, he has said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. Luke 12, 32. Similarly, our God will never leave us nor forsake us. And so as we find in Hebrews 13, 6, we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Was the Lord a shield to Abram? The Lord is a shield to all who trust in him. And so we read David's words in Psalm 3, 3, when he was on the run from Absalom. He says, But you, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. We find in Psalm 84, 11, The Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord gives grace and glory, and no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Did the Lord promise very great reward to Abram? Did he promise to be Abram's great reward? He has to us as well. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much. Now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Mark 9, 29, and 30. Similarly, we find Jesus saying, 
Matthew 25, 34, the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And just as the blessing which Abram received was that the Lord himself would be his reward, so too it is with us. The promise of the new Jerusalem is that of Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And that promise is reiterated in Revelation 22, 3 and 4. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. God promised himself to Abram. He promises himself to us in Christ as well. And all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you are in Christ, these promises are yours. You can rejoice, you can be glad, you can give glory to the Lord, for the Lord is faithful to his promises. We see it here in Genesis 15, and we know that the Lord does not change, and we can trust in him. And if you are not in Christ, if you've not passed from death to life in Jesus Christ, then this is something that you need to think about, because all of these blessings that are promised are only promised for those who are in Christ. And then what that means is that this should be something that you think about, because these blessings are not yours. In fact, the opposite of these things will be yours. Curses instead of blessings if you are not reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. And that means that our second point is of great importance to you this morning. As you you think about your life, you think about what God has promised, how can you be reconciled to God? That's what we find particularly in verse 6 and in our second point for this morning. So let's look back up to to verse 6. The setting there is that after the Lord had taken Abram outside and told him to look up and see the stars of the heavens and said, so shall your descendants be, then we find those words of verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, I'm reading from the the New American Standard translation. It puts the the temporal marker then in the translation, but that's that's a bit of an interpretive move. More literally, it would just be, and he believed, as you see in in the ESV and the King James Version. And this is really important. Abram believed in the Lord, not simply in the existence of the Lord, but he believed in the Lord in the sense that he trusted the Lord. He trusted the Lord's word, the Lord's promise, trusting the Lord's character to keep his word. He believed in the Lord. And we're told here that it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, what does this mean, that it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Well, it means that in the Lord's judgment, in the Lord's view, Abram was righteous, counted as righteous on the basis of his faith. Abram believed in the Lord, and the Lord considered Abram righteous on account of that faith. It's, it's interesting that the same word that's, that's used here, to, uh, it's translated as reckoned, to him as righteousness. The, the reckoning there is the same word that is rendered in the negative 
in Psalm 32. We sang the, uh, those words of Psalm 32 this morning. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. It's the same, same word. Sins are not imputed to those who have faith. Righteousness is imputed to those who have faith. Sin is not reckoned. Righteousness is reckoned to those who have faith. Now, Abram was a sinner. Surely he was. We've seen it earlier in the Genesis narrative, and we will see it hereafter as well. Abram was a sinner and continued to be a sinner. But nevertheless, in God's judgment, Abram is counted as righteous on the basis of faith. To use the New Testament language, he was justified by faith. He was justified by faith alone. And this, of course, is exactly the point that Paul is trying to drive home in Romans chapter 4, which our brother Nathan read for us earlier this morning. He says there, What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. It's really important that Paul says he justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Now Paul's point there in Romans 4 is that the way that someone is counted as righteous in God's sight is on the basis of faith alone. This was the way that it was for Abraham. Abraham was counted righteous on the basis of faith. Circumcision was certainly not the basis upon which God counted him as righteous. And Paul's very careful to point out that the declaration of Abraham as righteous is made in Genesis 15, which is two chapters prior to his circumcision, which was Genesis 17. And as that chapter unfolds, Romans 4, Paul goes on to make the point that it was not only for his sake. This is not just something that relates to Abraham. This is not just his male, but that it was written also for our sake, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. That's Romans 4, 23 and 24. In other words, these words are for us. We too, who believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead, are reckoned as righteous in the sight of God. Now, what does this mean to be, to be justified or to be reckoned as righteous in the sight of God? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number 33, asks the question, what is justification? The answer given is a, a helpful one. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Being counted as righteous starts with our sins being forgiven. And you see that even clearly in, in Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 4, where he makes reference to David's words of Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not take into account. In justification, our sins are forgiven. They are removed from us as far as the east is to the west. Again, they are not imputed. They are not reckoned to us. 
taken away, cast, as it were, into the depths of the sea. But justification does not stop there. It doesn't stop with sins not being imputed, but put in its place positively is the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We are counted as righteous by virtue of our union with Christ. Being united to Christ means that his righteousness is ours. His righteousness is imputed to us. And this is what we read together this morning from 2 Corinthians 5.21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's in Christ that we become the righteousness of God. Well, we find something similar in 1 Corinthians 1.30, that Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ has become these things to us. In other words, Christ is our righteousness. And we only have righteousness if we are in him. And we are only in him through faith. And thus we need to be very clear when we speak about justification by faith alone. We need to speak precisely. And we don't mean by justification by faith that we are justified by faith as if this were some virtue that God sees in us and therefore says, ah, I see faith, I will justify. I think the, uh, the Dutch Reformed and the Belgian Confession uh, dealt quite helpfully with this when they said, however, to speak more clearly, we do not mean that faith itself justifies us, for it is only an instrument with which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. And faith is an instrument that keeps us in communion with him in all his benefits, which, when they become ours, are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins. This is how we are saved in the beginning of our Christian lives, and this is how we are saved entirely throughout our Christian life, only through faith, faith which unites us to Christ, through whom we receive forgiveness because of his death on the cross, through whom we received righteousness on account of his resurrection from the dead, because we are united to him through faith. And we never get beyond this in the Christian life. From beginning to end, our justification is complete, because from beginning to end, it is Christ's righteousness which is imputed to us. And from beginning to end, it is based on the merits and work of Christ, not on our merits and not on our work. Now, obviously, faith certainly does produce good works, holy fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. But these are not the cause of our justification, and they never are. These are not the cause of our salvation. Now, good works are certainly necessary in those who are saved, but they are necessary as the fruit and evidence of salvation, the fruit and evidence that our faith is living and genuine and not dead. But good works, again, are not and never are the cause of salvation. I think Francis Turretin put it quite nicely when he said, although we acknowledge the necessity of good works, we do not on this account confound the law and the gospel and interfere with gratuitous justification by faith alone. Good works are required, not for living according to the law, but because we live by the gospel, not as the causes on account of which life is given to us, but as effects which testify 
that life has been given to us. This is where good works come in. They come in as effects, not as causes, but effects showing that we do have life because of Christ. Or as James put it, faith without works is dead. It's not true and living faith if there are no good works to accompany it. But even still, with all of that said, it is faith alone which justifies and always faith alone which justifies. And to that point, it might be helpful to consider when in Abram's life this pronouncement of justification was made. The pronouncement of justification is made here about Abram in Genesis 15, even though we first read about Abram's call by God and his subsequent obedience all the way back in chapter 12. Now this is worth considering, I think, because sometimes this event in Genesis 15 is seen as the point at which Abram was converted, the point at which he was saved, that he was now justified, whereas up to this point, he had not been justified. Up to this point, he had been, as it were, at enmity with God. Now, some people hold that view, that that's how we should read Genesis 6. There are others, and I would be among them, who would, would look back to Genesis 12 and see, given what we've already been told about Abram's faith, and his obedience of faith in the previous chapters of Genesis and the way that Hebrews 11, 8 through 10, speaks of that faith and the way that Hebrews 11 more broadly seems to imply about that faith, we would see that Abraham was already a justified man by the time you get to Genesis 15 and that Moses here is simply affirming what was already true and what continued to be true of Abram. Because Hebrews 11 speaks pretty highly of Abram's faith and obedience, which was already accomplished back in Genesis 12. Hebrews 11 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. Without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That's, that's how the chapter frames faith, and then it gives us, Examples of this kind of faith, this kind of faith that pleases God. And Hebrews 11.8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place that he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. When I read Abram's faith described in those terms, Hebrews 11:8 and following, I think Abram was a believer back from Genesis 12. He was trusting in God. He was a justified man. And that what Moses is saying here is a continuation of this justification. And it, it is still, even by this point, only by faith. Unless Calvin commented on verse 6 by saying, if anyone object that Abram previously, previously believed God when he followed him at his call and committed himself to his direction and guardianship, the solution is ready. That we are not here told when Abram first began to be justified or to believe in God, but that in this one place it is declared or related how he had been justified through his whole life. But now, since after such great progress... He is said to be justified by faith. It thence appears easily that the saints are justified freely even unto death. 
In other words, the fact that we are here told in Genesis 15 that Abram was justified by faith even after he had been walking with God for a matter of some years from his calling from, uh, from Haran to, to come down uh, to the land of Canaan. This is evidence that, that even after we begin walking with the Lord, even still our justification is completely gratuitous. It's completely of grace, completely a gift of God. And so this is the way of salvation, by faith. It always has been and it always will be until Christ's return. And this is important. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, that is to say, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, let me, let me take a moment to explain why this should matter to you. This should matter to you because if you're not a Christian... You are still in your sins. You are a sinner. You were born a sinner. You have sinned against God by doing what he has commanded you not to do. You have sinned against God by doing things that he has not commanded you to do. He's commanded that you serve him and that you trust him. You haven't done that. He's commanded that you love him. You haven't done that. He's commanded that you love your neighbor as yourself. God has forbidden lying, stealing, coveting, lusting, dishonoring our parents, worshiping other gods. He has forbidden us from being greedy and committing sexual immorality and so forth. The list goes on. You have not kept God's commands. And none of us have. And it's because of these things that the judgment of God will come. And God's judgment will come upon you personally if you have not turned away from your sins, and believed in Jesus Christ. And believing in Jesus Christ means believing the good news that God sent his only begotten son into the world, that he who was eternally true God became true man for us and for our salvation, that he lived sinlessly on this world, and that he went to the cross and died a horrifyingly gruesome and agonizing death to bear the punishment for the sins that his people have committed. And then he rose on the third day to demonstrate that the price for sins had been paid and that the wrath of God had been satisfied by the death of Christ. Paul expressed this good news in this way in 2 Corinthians 5.19, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. This is what God has done and is doing in Christ. And the call of the gospel to you today is that you need to be reconciled to God. And so if you've not done so already, I urge you to do it. Be reconciled to God. Turn away from your sins and believe in Christ. And I was recently uh, listening to uh, the testimony of a Christian man who had grown up in the church raised in a Christian home, and so forth. And he said that he believed all along that the gospel was true, that the Bible was true, that the Christian faith was true, but he didn't want it to be true for him. He didn't want to come to God. He wanted to live for himself. He wanted to live for the sinful pleasures of this world and enjoy the world, enjoy sin as much as he could, and put off his repentance to the end, have a deathbed conversion. That was, that was his plan. And he said that 
Toward the end of his first year in college, he was involved in a car crash that could have been deadly. And this woke him up to the fact that you might not have time. You, you plan on time, you bank on time at the end of your life to get right with God. You might not have that time. Life can go away from you just like that. And this is what the Lord used to bring him to repentance and to faith and uh, into the Lord's service. And the point is that this man learned a lesson that we all need to learn. Namely, that we never put off repentance. Never must we put off faith. That's the call of Psalm 95. Today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Young people and children, this, this is true for you too. It's easy to think when we're young that we'll, we'll have time, we can do that later. Today, if you hear his voice, today's the day to repent. Today's the day to trust in Jesus. The time to repent and believe is now. And if you're here this morning as a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, I want you to understand afresh from all that we've seen here in Genesis 15, the freeness and the goodness of the gospel, that God forgives sin, that God counts sinners as righteous through faith. Observe afresh in all of this the grace, the kindness, and the mercy of God. And in seeing all of those mercies, I urge you to love God. Because we see the loveliness of God. We see the loveliness of what God does for those who trust in Him. Serve God because His service is true freedom. Bear fruit in every good work because this is why God has saved you, so that you might bear fruit and live for His glory. Ephesians 2 tells us that it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of works so that no one can boast. But it goes on to tell us that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. So Christian friends, serve the Lord with gladness and joy because there is so much in which we can and should rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for your goodness and your loveliness, which is seen in how you relate to fallen and sinful men who deserve condemnation, yet you shower us with grace, with mercy, with new life. And so, Father, we ask that in the new life which you have given to us, we would serve you faithfully, We would serve you fruitfully, walking in good works. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.